Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my negatively influencing partner, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about the rich array of models for testing hypotheses about mutual influences between people within a dyadic relationship. Along the way, we also mention bones to pick, red herrings, bad influences, cow nutrition, playing both sides of the ball, Dion Sanders, the mind's eye, it's not me, it's you, background guitar music, phantom variables and money laundering, Kenny from South Park, syllabus bullet points, Eeyore, free steak knives, and foric relations. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. I have a bone to pick with you, my friend. <laughs> okay. I don't even know what that means, by the way. You don't know I have a bone to pick with you? No, I know what the phrase means, but literally, I don't know what it means, a bone to... Go ahead, just, just bring your bone. I'm sorry. Okay. I don't know. I like the etymology of these things, right? Like, I actually looked up once red herring as I said, oh, it's just a red herring. And somebody was like, what does that mean? And I said, oh, you know, taking your attention away. And they said, yeah, but what does it mean? And I went and looked it up. And have you ever looked up red herring? It's actually very cool. People would drag a dead fish across their trail to throw off the hounds that were following them. And so to say it's a red herring means that you're trying to take away from the main point. I like that. Not unlike what you're doing right now. When I open with, I have a bone to pick with you, and you turn to etymology. Uh -huh. You picked up on that. I have a bone to pick with you because you got me in trouble at dinner last night. <sighs> Yeah, just sigh all you want. Go ahead. What this time? We're having dinner, and on occasion, Andrea will listen to the podcast. Oh, that's nice. It is. It is nice. And she looked up at one point and said, you are such a bad influence on Greg. <laughs> exactly. Don't exactly me. <laughs> that was involuntary. I have to admit, not unlike what your reaction just was, is I was somewhat incredulous. Mm -hmm. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, you got him killing kittens. <laughs> and I kind of paused. And the kids were kind of half paying attention. But I have to admit, that got their attention. <laughs> and I said, okay, first, they were metaphorical kittens. Uh -huh. And second, I had nothing to do with that. For those listeners who are unfamiliar with the joke, it is not a Likert scale. It is a Likert scale because it's named after the guy Likert. So it's a Likert scale. And at one point, Greg made the joke that every time you say Likert, a kitten dies. Mm -hmm. And recently something came up and I went, Likert, Likert, Likert. <laughs> and Greg went, meow, 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 as three kittens died. Anyway, the point is, all three of them, my two kids and lovely wife, agreed that I am a bad influence on you. And I pointed out to them that I am guardrails on this cat rodeo. <laughs> And that if it weren't for me, uh -huh. you would have been canceled in episode three. Uh, uh, well, yeah, there might be truth to the I would have been canceled in episode three part. But for the who's a bad influence on whom, that is a bit trickier. I don't know. Well, that's where you're wrong. <laughs> I'm trying to decide what Goldie would say as to who's a, <laughs> who's a worse influence. That would be you. Uh, where did you come from? It's definitely you. Okay, I got it. Um, to be clear... It's definitely you. You are the worst influence. Okay, I got it. Thank you. Hi, Patrick. Hey, Goldie. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Bye. Okay, bye. It's definitely you. Okay, got it. See ya. <clears throat> Was she listening the whole time? <laughs> anyway, we bring stuff out in each other. I think that feels pretty safe. You got to give me that one, right? So you just want to go with a mutual sarcasm leading to dark humor? Yeah, I think that's pretty much how it goes. I have a lot of things that I keep locked away inside me, and I think that's because I wanted to keep my job. <laughs> I love it when we were talking to Derek Briggs, and he said, oh, you guys should have an outtakes show. <laughs> and you and I were both like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but yes, I would be willing to say that we have a mutual influence on one another, although you have a stronger leading effect. Wow. How about that? Uh, I don't think that at all. 
I think you are an overbearing, dominating, headstrong presence. And that's what makes me the way I am. I am not responsible for the way I am. You are responsible for the way I am. That is the sweetest thing you have ever said to me. Okay, I just want to, let me jot this down. All right, I got that. Yes. You know what it seems like is more of an empirical question. Um, <laughs> so I don't know who influences who more, but I would say we definitely do influence each other. Um, I don't know if I influence myself more than you influence myself or or how it all works, but it's definitely a system and it's a system that goes like that. <laughs> so this episode follows very nicely from all of this interdependence that we're talking about. Today, we're going to try and talk about actor partner interdependence models. They are models, as we'll get into, that help to understand the influences that people might have on each other as well as on themselves and to test pretty interesting hypotheses about those with wide applications to lots of different fields. And at the center of this, and there are many additional colleagues and contributors and really important work, but it involves one of my true heroes in the field, Dave Kenny at the University of Connecticut. Going back to my earliest days in grad school is he has been an icon to me of what we want to achieve both in quantitative methodology and in applied substantive research. He is a social psychologist, but he has made some of the most important quantitative methodological contributions there are to the field. If you have any sense of your own citation counts, <laughs> I was looking for a paper of his and ended up in Google Scholar. Mm -hmm. And two things are funny. The first is there are two David A. Kennys in Google Scholar, one of whom studies cow nutrition. So there are a series of very interesting papers on how to feed a cow, especially if you intend on eating him. Mm -hmm. Second, when you find the correct David A. Kenny, he has a hundred. 180,000 citations to his work. This guy is an absolute icon. He plays both sides of the ball. Remember back in the old days when they had leather helmets and just kind of beat the <laughs> snot out of each other in football and you would play, you know, both offense, defense. Yep. Offense and defense. Deion Sanders, you remember Deion Sanders? Very much. Played both sides of the ball. Deion drifts to the left, takes it on a 30 -tooth. One man missed him, another man missed him. Now he's going wide off to the right. Deion to the 25, to the 30, to the 35, the 40, the 45, the 50, the 45, the 40. My God, Deion Sanders is going to score. My God. Deion Sanders, prime time. Dave Kenny is the Dion Sanders of <laughs> research, I think. I mean, seriously, Dave has made as many contributions to social psychology as he has to quantitative methodology. And Dave, in the off chance that you're listening to this, I will send you the two cases of beer <laughs> that I owe you. It's from the late 90s. Uh -huh. <laughs> there are two general rules in making a bet with me. One is, is if I offer to bet you something, go ahead and take it because I'll lose. And second, just realize that I won't pay up. <laughs> so I have known Dave for years and years and years. And when I took an assistant professorship to Duke, I was there my first or second year. We were emailing and he pointed out that Duke's women's basketball team was coming to UConn to play UConn's women's basketball team. I'm from Colorado. It's a square state. I don't have a strong basketball tradition. And Dave said, do you want to put a wager on the game? And I said, absolutely. Isn't Duke great at basketball? You bet. I bet you a case of beer. Turns out UConn has a pretty good women's basketball team. They're okay, yeah. They won something like 200 to 2. UConn has done it again for the 10th time. They are the champions. <laughs> and in the spirit of fool me once, he bet me again, and I accepted again. Mm -hmm. And that one, I think Duke did a little bit better. I think it was 200 to three. Nice. 50% improvement. So Dave, this is the year that your beer is coming to stores, Connecticut. It's going to happen. So would you say that Dave has been an influence on you? Oh, look at you. I like how you twisted that in the best possible ways of somebody who comes up through the ranks as a substantive researcher with legitimate and passionate questions in how do human beings relate to one another 
And if he doesn't have a quantitative tool available to test the question in the way that he wants, well, he invents a big one. Would you say you've had an influence on him? None, none whatsoever. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) And that's at the core of what we're going to talk about here. For people who study couples, for example, or dynamics within families, any type of dyad that you might be interested in, it will extend beyond a dyad, but we're going to keep it mostly within a dyad. For anybody who studies dyadic kinds of relationships, the actor partner interdependence model is going to allow you to assess the magnitude of those relations, the interesting patterns of those relations. And exactly what you said was when you don't have the tool available to yourself that you need, what do you do? You build it, you make it. And something that you and I talked about in season one is that at some point when you've done statistics for a long time, I view it like this Lego kit, right? Where you have all of these different pieces. And rather than asking yourself each time, what should I pull off the shelf to answer this question? You just think about it in terms of the pieces that you need to put together to make whatever it is you need to answer your questions of interest. And I think that's the way that Kenny approached the actor partner model, that I would like something that allows me to assess the influences that people have on each other relative to the influences that they have on themselves. And it turns out that Dave knew a thing or two about path models and structural (laughs) modeling. It's possible. So he took that framework and said, how can I adapt that to answer these kinds of questions? How can I, and the term we often use is parameterize or reparameterize the system to be able to make it work for us. And that's what actor partner models are going to be. It's going to be taking what in essence, and I don't mean this critically at all, what in essence is a pretty simple model and then just doing things with it that are in service of very specific questions about the relations between people within a diet. I really like you use that term of a very simple model because simple and elegance are not orthogonal. It is a simple model. And the way that we're going to talk about it is it's simple in that it uses methods that are extremely well-developed and routinely applied in the field. We can do a whole lot of what we're going to talk about within a path analytic framework, within a standard multi-level modeling framework. It's simple, but it is also so elegant. Mm -hmm. We are taking a framework that is pretty well established analytically and that is pretty well understood analytically and using it in a very clever way to get to the kinds of questions that we're talking about. So think about diets. What are different ways that diets could arise? We can have spouses. We can have romantic partners. We can have podcast partners. We can have siblings. We can have twins. We can have best friends. What if you're studying reciprocal relations between two friends? We can have a a buddy of mine a long time ago was studying communication in the military, a tank commander with the tank driver. Hmm. Anything that you have a pairing, and as we may touch base on later, it in principle can be generalized to more than two people. But we're going to focus just on the two individuals in this conversation. But a neat thing to think about, and it has a very important substantive distinction, we can have a dyad that is called distinguishable. So that is, there's member one and member two, and something sets them apart. So say it's a heterosexual couple, one is a male and one is a female. Say that you're studying siblings, one is the older sibling and one is the younger sibling. But say that you were studying, I mean, we're just doing it as a gag and you and me, we're indistinguishable, all right, (laughs) is that there's member one, member two, even though you have a worse effect on me, is we're indistinguishable. My kids are twins. So you have siblings who are twins, you might treat those as indistinguishable. You might be studying romantic relationships in homosexual couples where there are two men or two women or two non-binary individuals. There's not something that sets them apart. So the big thing to consider first going into this is, is your dyad distinguishable or is it indistinguishable? Again, it doesn't change how we would gather data measure variables, incorporate these into the models. But as we'll talk about, this distinction does matter when we start estimating effects and imposing equality constraints. But the very first dividing point is, is your dyad distinguishable or indistinguishable? And some fine point that I would put on that is that even within same-sex couples, you may have same-sex couples that are distinguishable. 
It might be that one partner in the relationship is employed and the other is not employed. And you want to know about the kinds of impact that the unemployed and the employed partner have on each other. I worked with a student who was interested in studying within same-sex couples where one of the partners had a long-term illness and the other was in a caretaker role. So it has to be distinguishable on the basis of some characteristic, any characteristic for it to be distinguishable, and otherwise they are exchangeable partners. Either way, at the core of all of this is the idea that they are interdependent. These are not people that we are going to put into separate piles. Back in the day, your very first statistics class, you learned about an independent samples t-test and a dependent samples t-test. And in the independent samples t-test, there was no connection between the people. You had different piles and then you wound up comparing the mean. You learned about a dependent samples t-test. You realize that, oh, I can't put those people into different piles because they are related to each other. And so you needed some kind of test that accommodated the nature of the dependence between those two people in what you were studying. In that case, we were studying means. In this case, we need a system and there are different systems that we could use, but we need a system that acknowledges, accommodates, capitalizes on the interrelations between these two people. That's a wonderful conceptualization of that because when you start thinking about dyadic research, and Dave has a wonderful book with Debbie Cashy, Kenny and Cashy on dyadic data analysis, and there's a whole chapter in there Mm -hmm. on the actor-partner model. I highly recommend looking at that. But often when you think about dyadic data, at least for me when I was learning it for the first time, I immediately went to the non-independents. Oh, they're nested. Mm. We have to account for that. The standard errors are wrong all the usual stuff. That exact thing holds here, but there's a twist on it. It's not like imagine that you have two kids in a classroom and they both are taking a math test and you have some nesting of the kids in the classroom and you have to account for that. There's a teacher effect on the kids and so on. What this is, is taking those dyads, which are interdependent, but expanding that structure. Let's start simple. You're looking at romantic partners. Let's, for whatever organizing scheme we have, is to say that they are distinguishable based on whatever characteristic you have. And we're interested in the relation between depression and perceived marital quality. So I have my depression and I have my perceived marital quality, but my wife has her depression and her perceived marital quality. Now picture four measured variables in a very simple path model. I have my depression predicting my marital quality. Andrea has her depression predicting her marital quality. Those are what are called actor effects. So how does my own depression predict my own perceived marital quality? But there are those crosses. My depression also impacts Andrea's marital quality, and Andrea's depression impacts my marital quality. And those are called the partner effects. That's where the actor-partner term comes Now, our exogenous variables, which in this simple case is depression, those are correlated in the usual ways that we do in the GLM. My depression is allowed to correlate with Andrea's depression. But what is distinctly unique in this model and that allows it to do what it's trying to do is the residual term on the marital quality. So again, in your mind's eye, you have these four variables that each influence the other, but there's a residual on marital quality those are allowed to correlate. So what's left over in marital quality for partner one is allowed to correlate with what's left over in marital quality in partner two. And that is what represents that interdependence that is introduced by having the dyads nested within couple. Yeah, that residual correlation or residual covariance is pretty important because there are many things that influence marital quality. Depression is one of them, but there are other things as well. And those things might be related. So conceptually, it makes sense. If we didn't have that in there, though, that would mean that there's leftover relation between your marital quality and Andrea's marital quality that if we don't accommodate that, then the rest of the model is going to have to Mm whack-a-mole to try to absorb that somewhere. And then we will get a misleading impression, potentially of actor effects, potentially of partner effects. So that residual, as innocuous as it might be to connect those two things, is very important for the rest of the model to be properly specified. And from a conceptual standpoint, this makes a profound amount of sense. 
Because picture my perceived marital quality as a dependent variable. In this very simple model, there are two predictors of that, my depression and Andrea's depression. Mm -hmm. Well, what we're asking is, does my depression have a unique effect above and beyond Andrea's? And does Andrea's have a unique effect above and beyond my own level of depression? Now, if people haven't noticed, Patrick has already invoked the mind's eye. (laughs) I just can't help myself, can I? I know. I know. And I got to tell you, I'm still envisioning a red herring. (laughs) Seriously, tell me, if you're listening right now and you're driving in heavy traffic, tell me you're not picturing a red herring. (laughs) So one of the reasons that the mind's eye is so especially important in what we're talking about right now is that you and I are going to talk about actor-partner interdependence models, specifically within the structural equation modeling context, or for starters anyway, a measured variable path modeling context. And that requires a certain amount of visualization. Although you can do it with a bunch of equations, I completely think in that space in terms of pictures. So the picture that Patrick is asking you to conceive of only has four variables. It has two variables on the left, the exogenous variables. In this case, it was depression. Two variables on the right. In this case, it is perceived marital quality. And then a bunch of things are connected to each other. So we need you to hold that picture in your mind because we're going to work from that. Now, these types of models can be addressed and have been addressed in a multi-level modeling framework. And in fact, I think some of their roots came from the multi-level modeling perspective, but I think they've really taken more hold within a structural equation modeling framework. You're exactly right. Unless you have a higher order of nesting, Mm -hmm. if the couples are independent, the SEM is a very general framework for working with those. But imagine you're doing a treatment study on couples intervention, marital therapy, Mm -hmm. and you had couples that were nested within therapist, and you had multiple therapists, well, the MLM is very nicely suited for that in ways that we won't get into here. But if we assume that the dyads themselves are independent from one another, the SEM is really well suited for doing the kinds of things that we want to do here. Oh my gosh, yeah. And you and I will allude, I think, to some of the expansions beyond this little four-variable path model. But even beyond that, dealing with things like missing data to incorporate auxiliary variables, multiple group models, mixture models. There's so much potential here to expand the model within this framework. And I think that's one of the reasons that it has taken hold in SEM. That's exactly right. And one of the things that's nice, and again, for this particular model we're talking about is they're isomorphic with the MLM. So don't get the thought that like SEM is better and MLM is not. It all depends on what you're trying to achieve. But one of the things that we can start to build out with this model are equality constraints. So we only have four regression parameters, right? Partner one's depression on marital quality, partner two on marital quality in the cross. But it's really interesting, first, because when you get your head around even this foundational model, then it's very straightforward to build out to mediation, to moderation, to repeated measures. We'll talk about these in a little bit. But second, there are subtypes of models that Dave and his colleagues talk about. We will put these in the show notes. There are a whole number of really nice papers on this. Dave Kenny, Debbie Cashy, Thomas Lederman. There's a Shiny app that's available online where you can incorporate a text file and online establish what these relations are. We'll put a link into that on the show notes. It's really remarkable, the resources out there that exist that describe in very pedagogical ways how you do this, how you apply this with your own data. So, for example, putting different combinations of equality constraints on these regression parameters leads to different kinds of conclusions that you would draw about the structural nature of the relationship within each dyad. That's exactly right. And let's just talk about what some of the potential models are and what kind of information we can tease out. Now, before I do that, though, I want to make one thing clear, and that is that when we talk about path models... Path models historically, and I mean way back in history, were really thought about in terms of the standardized magnitudes of the connections here. We're talking about the unstandardized paths almost all the time here. When we want to know the effect of depression on perceived marital quality, we are doing it in the metric of those variables. 
As you know, when we standardize things, we standardize things using the standard deviations of the variables at both ends of a particular arrow. And the problem with doing so is that if, for example, the male partner in the relationships have different standard deviations than the female partners in relationships, then you're standardizing those paths using additional information beyond the effect that an exogenous variable has on an endogenous variable. So when we talk about comparing these paths, we are almost exclusively operating in an unstandardized world. And it's a new way of thinking because one of the reasons we are often so focused on standardized is picture, again, super simple, two predictor, one outcome regression. In non-dyadic traditional independent regression, our two predictors are different. Mm -hmm. We have socioeconomic status and reading ability and whatever. They're different metrics. They're different measures. They're different scales. And we say, well, how on earth do we compare these? Hey, I got an idea. Let's rip the scale out and we'll just do it on standard deviation units. But what is so cool about these models is our two predictors are the same scale, Mm -hmm. just reported on by different people. I filled out a depression inventory, and Andrea filled out a depression inventory. I filled out a perceived marital quality scale, and Andrea filled out a perceived marital quality scale. And we can compare those raw coefficients because they're on the same scale. That's right. So what are the models that we run and what questions do they answer? Well, for starters, the model that we've already described can be thought of as a saturated model, some kind of base model. And if it's the case that the exogenous variables are allowed to co-vary, which they are, partner's depression, for example, it would be expected to be related. If there is those actor paths from Patrick's depression to Patrick's perceived marital quality, Andrea's depression to Andrea's perceived marital quality, those are the actor effects. And then we get the partner effects that crisscross. Then we have the residual covariance between the errors associated with perceived marital quality. That's a saturated model. That has zero degrees of freedom. It will fit perfectly. Four dyads that are distinguishable. The baseline model, if they're indistinguishable, actually has a few restrictions on it. Because who is one and two doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And so the baseline model for an indistinguishable pair actually already has equality constraints on it. That is exactly right. And I am really glad that you brought that up because in my head, I keep thinking about distinguishable partner kinds of models. But when you have those interchangeable partners, then who is partner one and who is partner two is arbitrary. So that means that when we talk about partner one's actor effect or partner two's actor effect, There's no reason to think that partner one and partner two are different because their original assignment was arbitrary. So in that model, the actor effects would be constrained right out of the gate. And then the same is true for the partner effect. So we start off with some constraints in that model, which make complete sense because those partners are exchangeable or indistinguishable from each other. Thank you for mentioning that. All right. So let's maybe focus here on the distinguishable dyads. What are different mixing and matching of these equality constraints that allow us to have a different insight into the structure among these measured variables? Exactly. So all the things that we'll talk about have analogs to the exchangeable partners, but we're really going to focus on where they're distinguishable here. Now, there are different ways that people proceed from this baseline model. One is a model comparison approach. And a typical way to do this would involve running a bunch of models that represent different kinds of things. So for starters, imagine what we could call an actor-only model. An actor-only model is where you influence yourself, Andrea influences herself, but you all don't have any influence on each other. So there is none of that crisscrossing that's going on in the middle of the model. Because of the absence of those two parameter effects, literally we're constraining those to zero, then this model gains two degrees of freedom. It's more parsimonious, but it's also a very restrictive view of the world. So one question is, would your data be well-suited to be described by only having actor effect where no one has any influence on each other? So it's sort of the, uh, it's not you, it's me kind of model. (laughs) Oh, sweetie, it's not me, it's you. That's my favorite model. Is there a version of that? There is a version of that. (laughs) That would be the partner only model. (laughs) So it's not me, it's you, is the next model that we could run. So now instead of imagining an actor only model, imagine a partner only model where Patrick has no influence on himself and Andrea has no influence on herself. They really just are influenced by each other and it's beautiful. And I hear guitars in the background. Ah. 
I don't hear guitars. I just feel good that it's not my fault. <laughs> That's right. You are completely determined by someone else. <laughs> so in a partner model, we have neither of the actor effects. We only have the crisscrossy partner effect. This model also, because we are constraining to zero the actor effects, this model is going to have two degrees of freedom. Maybe it fits really well, or maybe it fits horribly. My guess is it probably fits horribly. And I say that because I think in many people's experience, one of the biggest predictors of a person is that, is that person, but maybe not. So we have a saturated model, which we know how it fits. It fits perfectly. And then we have two constrained versions of the model. And we could just for starters, run those and make a choice among those models. Now the actor only model and the partner only model can't fit better in a statistical sense, but they cannot fit statistically significantly worse. And if we take into account something like information criteria, it might actually just be a more parsimonious representation of what's going on. So for starters, those are the easiest models right out of the gate. Talk to me, though, about the other ones, because I find those really interesting. Now, there are different flavors of this type of model as well that involve constraints, but not constraints to zero. Instead, they would involve equality constraints. So we could run a model, Patrick, where you are equally influenced by both yourself and Andrea. And literally, we could constrain your actor path and the partner path coming into you to be equal. Which we could do because it's on the same scale. That's what's so exciting. Exactly right. So a one unit change in depression for either of you would be precipitating the same amount of change in perceived marital quality for you. So we could have those paths constrained. And then we could have Andrea's paths constrained as well, the path from herself and the path from you. That would be called a couple-oriented model. And just like the other models, we have gained two degrees of freedom by zeroing things out. Here we gain two degrees of freedom by constraining two paths that were free to be identical and constraining two other paths that were free to be identical. So this is a couple-oriented model and another potentially parsimonious explanation of what's going on in this particular system. I love that because certainly in some regression settings, we would have two predictors on the same scale that we might be tempted to do that. But I don't know if in a standard regression model, I've ever equated two regression parameters for two different predictors because it's just never made any sense. Yeah. And this one, it is exactly what you're trying to do. I love that. Yeah. And this framework lends itself really well to being able to do that. Another model that I might mention is something called a contrast pattern. And there are different ways to think about it. In the couple-oriented model, the paths coming into your outcome from both you and Andrea were constrained to be the same. That means that they're also the same sign. So that if your depression has a negative effect on your perceived marital quality, then Andrea's does as well. But what if it's the case that you two have opposite effects, such that Andrea's influence on you, if it's positive, your influence on you is negative and vice versa. This type of model, sometimes called a contrast model, it's one where partners almost compensate for each other. So we can also impose a constraint on the corresponding paths coming into you, and we can impose a constraint on the corresponding paths coming into Andrea, but they would actually be paths of opposite sign. So the question is whether or not the same effect but opposite in sign holds. That's called a contrast model. Remember, we have four measured variables. That's it. All right, so everything that Greg has talked about is with four measured variables. We can take ratios of parameters, and it involves a phantom variable. <laughs> I love phantom variables. David Rinskoff back in the 80s was the first to describe phantom variables. Oh, man, they are cool. They're like a money laundering scheme in the Cayman Islands. <laughs> they kind of exist, but they don't kind of exist. And the only reason they exist is so that you can do something that at least at the time you weren't able to otherwise. The at least at the time is really an important part of that story, because if someone wanted to impose a constraint on a model, not a simple constraint like an equality constraint, but imagine they wanted to do something like this path is the squared version of that other path. You're like, oh my gosh, how do I do that? It's 1984. What am I supposed to do with this? And Dave Rinskoff came up with very clever ways of introducing variables that weren't actually variables, variables that are more like factors than anything else, latent variables that had no indicator variables associated with them, that had no variability associated with them. But they could be inserted, for example, in between two variables. If I have a path from an X to a Y, I could break that path up into two parts by imagining there's a little factor in between X and Y 
So I have a path that goes into that little factor, a phantom variable, and then I have a path from the phantom variable going into Y. I could do constraints on those two pieces relative to other things. And he came up with a very clever way to introduce this in a variety of places within a model to be able to make the modeling framework a lot more flexible than it was, again, back in the day. Now we have software packages that are much more flexible with regard to nonlinear constraints, the creation of additional parameters, all kinds of stuff. There's still places for phantom factors to be used for sure, but a lot of those things can be done with nonlinear constraints. And you're literally creating a new parameter in the model. Mm -hmm. So Dave has a wonderful paper with Thomas Lederman, 2010 Journal of Family Psychology, they talk about this new parameter that they call K in honor of Larry Kurdek, who was an early titan in dyadic research. But it's the ratio of the partner effect to the actor effect going both ways. So you have a K1 and a K2. If you're interested, you can look at the paper. It describes substantively why you would want to do that. It answers yet another question out of the model. They use phantom variables, which work very, very well. But Greg, as you just alluded to, we could use a nonlinear constraint where we create a new parameter that's a ratio of the two other parameters. But the nice thing is, is we get a point estimate, we get a standard error, we get a confidence interval, it becomes a testable hypothesis. So this is an incredibly powerful way of saying, wait, I've got a substantive question about the ratio of the partner's own effect with respect to the actor's effect. That has substantive meaning, and we can isolate and estimate that within the model. And you can also address the questions that you have associated with actor-partner models in other ways as well. Just like you could create an additional parameter that's a ratio of two effects, I could do something very simple. Like if I want to know if your effect on you differs from Andrea's effect on Andrea, one way is I could actually constrain the two actor effects. I could also just create a new parameter that's the difference between your two actor effects and let maximum likelihood sort of do its thing and give us some estimated standard error associated with that difference. And that just comes right out. But I could do that with actor effects. I could do that to compare our partner effects. But I could also do it to compare the actor effect of you on you with the partner effect of Andrea on you, for example. I could just create a difference parameter associated with that, get a standard error, get a significance test on that. So I could get a lot of the comparisons of interest from one model just by creating the additional comparisons of associated parameters just as extra parameters in the model. So there's a lot of things that we can do. We could even do it all at once, which I think is a very, very clever thing. Now let's take a step back. So we all have visualized two things in our mind's eye so far. Well, three if you count the dead kitten. <laughs> the second is the red herring. And the third is we have four squares that are connected with single-headed or double-headed arrows in that measured variable system. Mm -hmm. Now let's pan back. So we've got the Vaseline lens panning back shot. Which is, okay, we're living in the SEM, so that gives us access to all the goodies of the SEM, meaning mediation, meaning latent factors, meaning all these interesting things you alluded to earlier on. So let's pick away at a couple of those. The first and foremost, and what lives near and dear to your and my hearts, is we are making the usual assumption that the predictors are measured without error. Mm -hmm. When I report on my depression and when Andrea reports on her depression, we are assuming those are perfectly reliable. And so if you take your mind's eye and every place you had a square or a rectangle, pop that out and drop a circle right in there. So now I have a circle that represents true depression. Lord knows how we're going to measure that. <laughs> Please hold. And then you have a circle for perceived marital quality, which represents a true perceived marital quality. So now we got four circles connected to each other. But of course, we can't just analyze four circles. We need evidence of each of those four circles. And so we have indicators of depression. We have indicators of perceived marital quality that wrap a measurement model around. The focus of this is still going to be the crisscrossing among those four central elements. It's just that now those four central elements are latent, and that helps to give us disattenuated estimates of the relations that we really cared about all along. All right, so now we have, instead of four squares, we have four circles. Coolio, what about mediators? Ooh. 
Dave has a passing familiarity with mediation. <laughs> he has one paper with over 100,000 citations. Yeah, whatever. I don't know the answer to this question, but I wonder if he might gladly get rid of those 100,000 citations by not having Baron and Kenny, only because the poor guy has had to answer so many questions over the years. So many questions that he set up a website for it. <laughs> and again, we'll put this link on as well. Dave has a wonderful webpage. Yeah. Oh my gosh. He has PowerPoint slide decks. He has webinar kind of things that you can do every possible thing. And you know what my favorite part of his website is? What? Not that there are more resources there than any 10 faculty combined. I mean, it's an absolute remarkable resource for all of us but that his little icon at the bottom of each page to get back to the homepage is a little picture of David and a little picture of Kenny from South Park. <laughs> and it's Dave Kenny. Nice. That's the highlight of his entire webpage. Not that he puts free PDFs of his books. Yeah, whatever. Not that he has dozens of narrated PowerPoint slides. Not that he has shiny apps and all of this. But I like Dave Kenny. Yeah, that is a total leave me alone webpage though, right? So <laughs> it is, it's like your syllabus, right? Your syllabus is nine pages long because of all the crap people ask you. Oh, every semester it's a living history. <laughs> so any yeah. of you who have taught more than about five years, think about your syllabus and every bullet yeah. was from like Stacy in 2017. <laughs> That's that point. And then the next bullet is because of Michael from 2019. Yep, every bullet. It is a story on your syllabus. <laughs> so he has all of those resources, which are fantastic. And we, as you said, can ask questions about what mediates the effect of depression for you on your perceived marital quality. What mediates the effect that Andrea has? And is it your variables that mediate your effects? Is it Andrea's variables that mediate your effects? I mean, all of the stuff that we talked about with regard to the actor and partner effects become even richer with the introduction of mediators. Exactly. And what I love about all of this is whatever you would ask yourself in the usual path analytic framework, you ask here. Yeah. But now it's just scaled up where maybe you have a measure of my optimism and you have a measure of Andrea's optimism. Hmm. Well, go ahead and push the circles back, drop that in, and maybe my depression influences my optimism that influences my perceived marital quality, right? We just start pushing things out and dropping in mediators in the usual way, but now it just scales up. Yeah to exactly as you said, is it a total actor-mediated effect? So it's my depression to my optimism to my perceived quality, or is it a partner-mediated effect that my depression impacts Andrea's optimism that in turn impacts her perceived quality, right? As if she sees me as a kind of a negative presence. Eeyore. Nothing to do and no hope of things getting better. If I'm an Eeyore and then she just thinks, all right, this is never going to get better. I'm not seeing positive things. And then that in turn leads her to have a lower perception of quality. So again, business as usual, but now instead of one mediator, we have two, one for the actor, one for the partner. And as if that's not enough, latent variables, mediators, we could have covariates in this model, things that we wish to control for. And those covariates could be covariates that are at the couple level, could be like family income, or they could be covariates that each of you have. So even with regard to income, there could be some amount of money that you bring into the home, some amount of money that Andrea brings into the home. They could be other personal characteristics. So we could be controlling for those at both levels. But wait, don't say yes yet. There's more. We haven't even gotten to the free set of steak knives. This whole set of high-quality steak knives is for you, and they're free. There are several really nice papers that then take those covariates and say, well, what if there's moderation? Oh, my gosh. So Dave also has a passing experience with moderation. <laughs> Maybe your covariate is number of years married. Mm -hmm. Have you been married one year, five year, 10 year, 20 years? And maybe say, well, some of these processes interact 
with how many years you have been married. So that for older, more established couples, that in some way modulates the magnitude of the effects. But you could also have maybe the effect of my depression in some way is a function of Andrea's depression. Mm. You can have a moderation between the two predictors themselves. Again, what's good in your regular kind of modeling, all the things that you would think about, the mediators, the moderators, it plays out here as well. But here it's just that much more exciting because you have two of everything. It's so rich, right? Even at the very first example that you had where the number of years that you have been married, maybe that is a moderator of the effect of your depression on perceived marital quality but maybe it is less so for the other person. And you can test whether or not that's the case. Is the magnitude of that moderation different across members of the dyad? So we've got latent variables, we've got moderators, we've got mediators, we've got covariates. Do I get my steak knives yet? What would I do with the passage of time? Uh, right? Because everything we've talked about just for fun and puzzling through the different corners of the room has all been cross-sectional. Yeah. But if you wanted to say, well, wait, is depression influencing marital quality or is marital quality influencing depression or is there a reciprocal relation between the two? Mm-hmm. Okay, no worries. Fill up your coffee, get comfy, and start moving to our entire stable of longitudinal methods that we have. And it is quite a stable, right? There we can talk about growth type models, change score models. I'm a big fan of the work that you have done on the latent growth models with structured residuals. And I think that would play out really nicely here. So as this model stretches out across time, the questions you can ask are just so rich. Are the actor or partner effects more prominent earlier on or later on, right? You can have all kinds of incredible questions. So just recently, you and I had a paper together where we talked about the whiteboard problem of co-development, two things changing over time. And we puzzled through multivariate growth model and an autoregressive model and a latent curve with structured residuals. And all of it was... How do we link two constructs together as they unfold over time? And the core of that entire discussion that you and I had, and many, many other people have contributed to this in super important ways, is the same person with two different constructs, depression and anxiety, reading and math ability, alcohol use and aggression. Everything that we talked about, the two constructs, were different measures for the same person. Dude, take that architecture and have one growth model for my depression and one growth model for your depression. And you can look at bivariate growth within the dyad Mm -hmm. of how does my depression unfold in relation to your depression. So it's exactly the same measure, exactly the same architecture, exactly the same everything, except instead of me with two constructs, it's the same construct on two individuals within a dyad. And then stretch that out, right? Now, this is getting really challenging, But stretch that out where you have repeated measures of depression and repeated measures of perceived marital quality across husband and wife. The thing is, is we have the statistical architecture to do that. We just need the richness of the data to support the estimation of those increasingly complicated models. Yeah, very, very exciting, right? We didn't even talk about having multiple groups or having mixtures. There's just so many overlays for this. And uh, it all started with that little four measured variable path model. That Dave first hit the ball into play. He had a substantive question and he said, hey guys, look, if you do this, that'll allow us to test this particular question. And this entire field has developed out of that. And again, not minimizing anyone else's contributions. Dave has worked closely with a whole variety of colleagues And we will put these papers on the webpage. We will put a link to the Shiny app. We will put a link to Dave's homepage so you can see the little image. I don't know if any of you watch South Park, but the standard line of, they killed Kenny. I laugh every single time. Oh my God, they killed Kenny, you bastards. (laughs) But just again, I'm sorry to belabor, but in your mind's eye as you're sitting there, 
picture almost any path model, latent variable model, multivariate growth model as you normally would, and then simply envision half of the measures coming from one person Mm -hmm. and half of the measures coming from the other, and think about your questions in sibling development, in peer influences on behavior in romantic relationships, and then scale up as you literally can think about a pilot and a co-pilot in an aircraft. There's a big set of literature on how there have been some very famous airplane crashes where the co-pilot has noted a problem and the pilot has overridden them. Mm -hmm. And how do you develop where both the pilot and the co-pilot have equal voices in the safe operation of the aircraft? I mean, oh my gosh, it just kind of blows your mind in the different kinds of questions that we can ask and the different ways that we can design a study and gather measures to allow us to make these a priori testable hypotheses. Yeah. And so I hope for people who are out there who study these kinds of systems, these kinds of dyadic or even triadic or foric, I'm sure that's it. Yeah. So for people who study these kinds of things, I hope that you will take the opportunity to learn a little bit more about this ever-increasing suite of tools that you have to answer some incredibly cool questions. And the end of the day is it will bring objective empirical proof that I'm the guardrails to this outfit (laughs) and that Greg brings it out in me. Likert, Likert, Likert. (laughs) Take care, everybody. I got to go dig another hole in the backyard and get rid of these kittens. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Quantitude on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you distract yourself from that pile of grading that needs to be done. Seriously, look at it. It's just sitting there. Oh, and please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod. Or visit our completely redesigned website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes, searchable playlists, show notes, and other cool stuff. Be sure to hover your cursor over the rotating dots. It's totally cool. Finally, you can get awesome Quantitude merch that you can use as holiday gifts for family members, but then offer to take it back and keep it for yourself when they give you an utterly perplexed look upon opening it at redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude. This is the last sane installment of the year before we hit you with our upcoming holiday episode. We would like to apologize in advance. And now, a Quantitude public service announcement. Hello. My name is Dave Kenny, and I hereby attest that no kittens were harmed in the production of this or any other Quantitude episode. This does not, however, excuse Patrick and Greg from a litany of other prior travesties, such as researcher degrees of freedom or pre-registration or emojis for statistical power or backyard corpses or talking lemurs or not paying up on long overdue basketball debts, Patrick, or whack-a-mole, or drinking God forbid Coors Light, or having haiku and limerick contests, or 4 a.m. headlights in the rain, or shooting at stop signs.